Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for a National Associate of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome to the Health 411 program. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health Medical Center. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our esteemed guest, Dr. Christopher Young uh, from Capital Health Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Young. Hi, thanks. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Dr. Young is a physician with an ex, he's a cardiologist and cardiologist. cardiologist. So we start out, we are a campus radio station. So can you tell us a little bit about your path to cardiology? And was this a lifelong uh, dream of yours or did you find it along the way? So what was your path towards medical school and then towards cardiology? Sure, yeah. Um, I, you should probably start way back. I mean, I, ne I never really thought I was even going to college, you know, thinking uh, school is hard and school is no fun. And, and uh, the beginning was probably harder than the end, to be honest with you, you know, getting through school and things like that. And then as I got into college, I thought I wanted to do something in a laboratory, some sort of biology. And from there, really started to open up my options as far as where I thought I wanted to go. And I guess one day I thought, uh, I think I should go to med school. And I was at uh, Newman College, which is now U Newman University, right in Delaware. And back then, this is before the internet and things like that, so I had no clue where to go and what to do. So I went to the bookstore and bought a book for the best liberal arts colleges and ended up out at Juniata, which has a great reputation for uh, medical, you know, medical education and um, getting uh, students into medical school and uh, did great there, was really happy, and then got into PCOM, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, which is where I did my uh, med school training. And that, that's really where it really started to focus down on what type of medicine I thought I would like. And from, you know, doing different rotations and spending time in different departments, that was where really kind of focused down on cardiology. And cardiology, like you said, just for the basics of it, is basically the cardiovascular system. So we deal mostly head to toe with the vascular system, but really focused on the heart. Anything from symptoms that might be chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, that people have had heart attacks and strokes, um, different heart problems. Um, you know, we, we manage sort of top to bottom from that. So in, in your discovery of cardiology, what was it that drew you into that profession? What lit the light bulb? You know, I think that your profession sort of chooses you. Mm -hmm. If you go into a room of surgeons, they all kind of have a, <laughs> a personality. <laughs> if you go into a room of cardiologists, they all sort of have a certain way to them. Um, what is the way you know, of cardiologists? Well, I, I, you know, well, 
geez. <laughs> my, my, my real answer is they always think they're the smartest in the room. But um, it's because we, we think we're quite academic and we're lucky enough to have many, many studies. You know, e even before the rest of medicine was doing as many studies, we always had lots of guidelines. And the American College of Cardiology um, really tries to put together the information the best they can. But, um, you know, I, I think I think when you're going through school, especially into medical school, you're starting to think, do I want something that's more academic and, and um, um, you know, more more management wise? Or am I into surgery or emergency room or trauma? You know, all, the, all these different specialties. And um, usually like any any other thing, you're usually influenced by your mentors. And I think what I, you know, I, I, I could tell you the rotation that I had where I really decided cardiology was it. And, and you have to say that it's part of the people that you're with that help you make that decision. Oh, very, very good. Um, so in, in the world of cardiology, you finished medical school, but you still have to do more school for people who are listening, correct? Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of nonstop to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, four years of college, then four years of medical school, and then from medical school, uh, three years of residency, and th that's medicine residency, and then from there, three more years of cardiology fellowship. Um, so the residency and the fellowship is much more hands-on, not in classrooms anymore, um, but still. A, large period of learning and nonstop reading and test taking and you know it, it doesn't stop there every 10 years you need to recertify in your board certification which i just finished that uh, i'm board certified in three different um, topics i guess you would say and that was about two years over like 20 to 2021 so finally finished that up for the for the next 10 years but Every, every, every day is a, is a learning. So, so a student uh, who is in a rush to finish, this might not be an appropriate career path. Would you no, agree? I, I, I think any career path, you're always learning. <laughs> the, 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 the part of, uh, of this is that you're always tested to make sure you actually know it. And that's a certification, much like school. There's <laughs> just an extension of it into your, your 20s and your, and, and your 30s. And one of the things you yeah. mentioned is that, um, that you, in cardiology, you're, you deal with more than just the heart. So, Correct. Can you, so you know, it's, it's real. You, if the, the real, you know, we, we call ourselves cardiologists, but the real, the real um, sort of specialty is cardiovascular medicine. Um, and, you know, we, we, we know everything's all connected, but in a, in a large way, the vascular system is run by the pump of the heart. And we are involved in many other specialties. For example, neurology um, with stroke, you know, uh, both involve the cardiovascular system. So when a patient has a stroke, we're both involved and, and you know, both looking for the best treatment for the patient. Okay. Now, within cardiology, there are several different areas that one can sort of specialize in. And one of your areas of expertise is nuclear cardiology. Can you explain to people who are listening what nuclear cardiology is? Sure, so I'll back up just a little bit and say that general cardiology or you know, my, my specialty would be considered non-invasive cardiology because I don't do catheterizations and stents and things, which is another sort of subspecialty. Um, but within general cardiology, we, we do testing, which includes uh, stress tests and nuclear stress tests, and also echocardiograms, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And there's special board certifications for general cardiology, nuclear cardiology, and echocardiography. Are those the um, three that you mentioned that you're 
certified in? Correct. Okay. Yes. So with nuclear cardiology, we, we use nuclear uh, radioisotopes to see if there's any evidence of blockages in the arteries. And we can do that by exercising a person on a treadmill. And then it's not really taking a picture, but it's easiest to think about by saying, we, we take a picture of the heart and look to see if there's any evidence of blockages of the arteries. And, and we're able to use the, uh, the nuclear radioisotopes to do that, that, that um, basically uh, go to the heart and are released from the heart so that we can take those pictures. And you bring up an interesting point. A lot of people hear the word nuclear and they're thinking of Hiroshima or something mm -hmm. like that. Is is that a word to be afraid of in, in, in medicine in general and cardiology specifically? Well, I can bounce that back to you, right, as the biologist. Yeah. Well, I, I know I, I'm being I'm being rhetorical here. I sort of I, 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 I have an idea of how I hope you want. I want you to answer that. But let's see what you do with it. Yeah. So so the the um, the, the word nuclear has. Of, of course, it's negative connotations, yeah. but you, we, you know, I, I, I think people will be shocked at how many times radiation and nuclear um, uh, type activities um, are used in, in many different things, but specifically in medicine. You know, the, 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 um, the use of different types of radiation is used from anything from an x-ray to nuclear stress test. Um, in fact, one of, one of the sort of uh, interesting things about, about the word nuclear is an MRI, no one ever calls it by its true name, which is an NMRI. Yes. And they, they actually took the word nuclear out because it freaked people out and they, they didn't want to yes. say that they were going for, you know, this <laughs> thing. But when, when something functions around the nucleus or has that sort of function, it, it, it ends up in the name. But just, just an interesting fact that, you know, they, the, the, the people who started with MRI knew that that was a word that people would fear, so they just took it out. Yeah, yeah. it's funny that you bring that up because it's, it's, abs it's absolutely true, and um, I certainly remember that from other things. Um, so it, it, the last thing um, about, about background that you mentioned is that you give people these nuclear tracers, and then you look at what the heart is doing with them. Can you explain what that is for people who are listening? Sure. So what, what really happens is we, we inject it into the into the veins and it goes throughout the body. But the type of isotopes we use are, are attached to different molecules. And those molecules have a, um, an a, affiliation for the heart. So when when they go to the heart and sort of um, gather in the heart, then as that as that um, isotope breaks down, we're, we're able to look at that radiation that comes out and essentially create a picture um, of the heart. And we take two sets of pictures. We take one before you exercise, which should be a normal looking heart um, with, with all of the muscle, you know, we say sort of lighting up. Um, and if there's a blockage in the artery after you exercise, we, we may find that there's an area that doesn't light up. And that, that's the information we take as far as um, trying to figure out if there's an area of the heart that might have a blockage or you might have had a heart attack in the past. Um, information like that. It also is able to show the function of the heart, how well the heart squeezes um, through, through um, you know, a, a basically taking pictures over the heart cycle. It shows how the heart is moving and how that function is. Excellent. And um, I want to hear more about how that works. I'll ask you a little bit about the physiology, but we need to take a break for some underwriting announcements. So we'll be right back on Health 411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health Minds Advancing Medicine. 
1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I'm here with Dr. Christopher Young. Dr. Young is a cardiologist at Capital Health Medical Center, and we're talking about cardiology, what it is, and I could say what it's not. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that uh, people in general have about cardiology? I guess um, it, it, it probably isn't specific with, with cardiology, but overall health. So the general care that you need to live a good, healthy heart life is really just function on the basics. It's good diet, good exercise, good sleep. And the misconception, I think, the biggest misconception I can say about heart health is we think that we can beat our bodies down um, not eat well, not exercise, not sleep well, maybe take a couple vitamins and, and we'll, we'll be okay. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is if we stuck to the basics, which again, are good diet, good exercise and good sleep, um, we, we find ourselves in a lot better heart health. The cardiology world has very much promoted um, looking for symptoms that might be of a heart attack. So mm-hmm. today happens to be Go Red for Women Day. You're told if you have chest pain, you you know you need to take it seriously. You need to go to the emergency room. And these type of things are important because so many people pass off symptoms um, as not being important enough or or not being from the heart. In fact, I, I had a patient yesterday. This comes up with a good misconception. Um, she was shoveling snow. She had some chest pain. Mm-hmm. Um, really, she might have had a little heart attack that day. There's no way to find out because she didn't go to the uh, ER that day. But as I told her, I really think this could be your heart. She said, well, well, it, 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 wasn't, it didn't hurt enough. It wasn't serious enough. And we, we, we had to go through a whole conversation saying it doesn't have to be serious. You, you don't want to be the person on the ground getting CPR, you want to be the person who had some symptoms, got it checked out, and were taken care of so that we don't get to that point. What are those symptoms? What are sort of the signs of a, of a heart issue? So one of the worst words in cardiology is chest pain, because we always talk about chest pain. Do you have chest pain? And I can't tell you how many times I've had a person in front of me having a heart attack, and I walk in, and it's just so natural to say chest pain. I say, how is your chest pain? And they say, I don't have pain. And I say, well, you know, what, what, what are you feeling? They say, well, there's an elephant sitting on my chest. It's the worst pressure I ever had in my life, but it's not pain. So it, it's, it's a shame we've fallen into this word of chest pain because it really is a distractor. It doesn't have to be pain. And most commonly, the symptom would be a pressure or tightness, usually around the center of the chest. Some people think it only can be on the left side. So if it's on the right side, it can't be the heart. That's not really true. It could be anywhere across your chest. And then any symptoms associated with shortness of breath or a, um, uh, a limitation on your activity. So that could be somebody who doesn't do much. Maybe they're short of breath just walking across the room. But there's many people who are in really good shape and unfortunately have heart disease who used to be able to run 20 miles and now at five, they feel like they can't go any further. So some sort of limitation of exercises sometimes are a major symptom, but 
if we're really to focus on some, I, I think we would talk about chest pressure or shortness of breath specifically with exertion. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you know, there's also plenty of like nonspecific sort of heart attack symptoms. Like, you know, you can get tingling down your arms. And even when my dad had his heart attack, he simply had like heartburn, he called it. Anytime he'd go up the stairs, he'd be like, oh, it's just heartburn. He didn't want to go to the hospital. You know, if I knew what I knew now about heart health and such things, I would have taken him straight to the emergency room. Right. So the, the, the term heartburn is, is because it sounds like it's from your heart, right? True heartburn has nothing to do with your heart. True heartburn is GERD or reflux disease, you know, a, a burning sort of symptom in the middle. So we all, well, the older of us know that when you don't eat well or maybe you had too many drinks or something like that, that's a, that's a good heartburn day. You know, your stomach doesn't feel well. You don't feel well. But heartburn doesn't have anything to do with walking up the stairs. So if I had your father in front of me at that, uh, you know, with those same symptoms, I have lots of people who tell me I get heartburn every time I walk up the stairs. And I said, no, that, 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 that's not the, that kind of heartburn. That's the kind of symptom that we need to look to see if there is something going mm -hmm. on. The other um, heartburn sort of thing I've seen a few times is people who have never had a problem with their stomach in their life, never had heartburn. They can eat spicy wings all day long and never have a problem. And now all of a sudden they're carrying around Tums. And every time they go for a walk, they start taking Tums. And I said, well, that, that, that's not heartburn either. You know, so there, there certainly are some milder symptoms. Um, if you have no heart problems and you eat the spiciest wings and you get heartburn, well, sure, that might be heartburn. But if you are exerting yourself and feel this burning or, or, you know, sort of tightness in the chest, that's the kind of stuff that really is much more concerning for cardiac. And again, this goes back to that topic that it doesn't have to be a severe symptom. So your father was saying, oh, it's heartburn. It's nothing. You know, mm -hmm. it's sort of, you know, it comes. And then, you know, probably when he wasn't walking up the steps, he felt better. Yep. So you almost forget about it. You say, ah, you know, sometimes I get this heartburn and then it goes away. So what's the connection to what you're describing and a word that's sometimes used out there called angina? Yeah, I don't. So there is a real definition for that. Yeah. There is a definition which angina is the symptom of chest pressure or whatever you might have that is due to blockages in the arteries. Okay. But everyone's great grandmother also had angina. And nobody really knows. Which is what exactly what, that's what I'm asking. Yes. <laughs> the word that when the kids were acting up, you know, great grandma got, got angina or did she, they really have blockages or what was going on? So there, there's, there's times where they'll say, oh, my great, great, great grandmother always had angina. And I said, well, we didn't even know what it was back then. That, that was probably, you know, like some people are called agita, mm -hmm. um, more, more of a sort of discomfort or upsetness usually that goes along with stress. Mm -hmm. But the true definition of angina is you know like like we just talked about those mm. symptoms usually related to to exertion yeah and so when you do your nuclear cardiology and you inject small amounts of radioactivity and you look i guess that's a, an angiogram of, of sorts can you pick up the the what you're describing um artery blockages is that what you're looking for yes yeah, so so when when someone has symptoms so we we, we can go back to the heartburn story you know every time i walk up the stairs i get heartburn that's somebody who i would say this is a patient who i need to find out do they have blockages in their arteries and that's the type of patient that we would we would do a stress test on so there's a couple things we get out of that so we would put the patient on the treadmill and have them exercise if you get that heartburn again on the treadmill well that that that's something that is significant or abnormal for us 
the other thing we look at is the EKG to see if there's any abnormality that shows that there's blockages. And then the pictures that we get from the nuclear imaging, um, that also would be part of the picture that tells us it looks like there is a blockage in a certain area. Is, is um, in some of the symptoms, um, I guess this picked up diagnostic, but in the symptoms you describe, is there a, such a thing as referred pain with heart issues? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So um, one, of, one of the stories, and I can't promise this is true, but the reason why you wear the ring on the ring finger is because they felt it was connected to your heart because the radiation of pain from your chest down your arm in some world many years ago <laughs> mm -hmm. was felt to go to that finger more than anything else. So um, the symptom truly being from your heart and from your chest can go to your chest, can go to your neck, can go to your arm, more commonly the left arm than the right, but not only the left. There's many times where we've seen it on the right or back pain. The, um, the wildest story that I remember is a woman who got ear pain every time she did the dishes. Now she didn't do much, so dishes wow. were her activity, but um, you know, she saw an ear doctor, she saw this doctor and that doctor, finally found out that she actually had blockages in her arteries and then she could do the dishes with no more ear pain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story. <laughs> so, so when we're they're, they're they're the hard ones. I mean, you know, ear ear pain is certainly not typical, and we wouldn't consider washing dishes to be a significant, well, you know, exertional type activity. Mm -hmm. But well, even somebody with ear one pain, of the most important things in medicine is you want you want to you yeah. want to do things that make sense, right? So you want to look at the most common things, but you can't rule out the others before yeah. you you know uh, 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 totally. Yeah. So. You you want to you want to think what is the most common? Let me work down my differential of what the possibilities are, but don't roll out the things that are uncommon because uncommon things happen sometimes too. Well, somebody with ear pain, the first stop wouldn't necessarily be a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. So what? No, she saw, it wasn't what, her either. She yeah, saw well, everyone else before she saw us. And so it was sort of a process of elimination to sort of get exactly. to that point. So so is the message for people who are li listening? Um, not to put words in your mouth, but if the, the message is if you feel anything unusual and you can't identify a specific cause of it, like you said, you know, a lot of spicy food, the, the, the stop should be a physician somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And and really, it's it's something new. So that 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 that's the biggest thing, I think. I mean, there, there's many people we see that will will pick on heartburn again, you know, they've had their heartburn their whole life. And now all of a sudden somebody's saying, well, it's gotta be your heart. Well, that one's probably not your heart, but if there is something new, if you usually walk two miles a day and now you find trouble doing that, it might not be a dramatic symptom. It might be chest pressure. It might be shortness of breath. It might be, and this was another patient I saw recently, um, walks three miles every day, never had a problem with it, but now after the walk has to sit down still able to do the three mile walk but has to sit down and relax and that it, it it doesn't have to be much more dramatic it really can be something like that and it's not that everyone needs to run to the emergency room but symptoms like that that you know you notice have been going on for a little while that's the kind of thing you want to see your doctor for and, and talk about to see if there is any evidence of something more concerning or, you know, maybe you're just not getting enough sleep and you're tired and we need to work on, you know, the more simple things. Excellent. And we want to hear some, probably some more of those more simple things and some more about cardiology after we take a break on Health 411 for some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We are having a conversation today with Dr. Christopher Young, a cardiologist at Capital Health Medical Center, and he is telling us about cardiology, the things somebody might look out for if they're suspect a heart issue or something unusual is happening in their bodies. Um, and he was talking about some of the symptoms. And to start off this segment, Dr. Young, I want to ask you about what are some of the most common things that go wrong with people's hearts? So not, not that we're proud of it, but the number one killer is heart disease. And when a cardiologist the, says heart disease, what do they mean? Yeah, so the, the most common would be blockages in the arteries. Okay. So that's heart attacks, and the blockage in the arteries can be can be uh, cause a weakening of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, f- down from there, probably the most common thing is symptoms that may, maybe aren't dangerous or bad, but um, but happen like palpitations. So palpitations is a sensation of your heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So there is many times throughout 24 hours that your heart will skip a beat or have a little extra beat or some sort of thing like that, that some people feel, and it's quite bothersome to them. Um, and we do different monitors and things to try and figure out what's going on. And many times it's something benign. It's not necessarily normal, but it's common and benign. Um, so we, we, we do a lot of addressing symptoms like that, palpitations or shortness of breath that might be associated with something that isn't necessarily um, a major problem. And our, our biggest fo- focus really is prevention. So when we talk about the most common things we manage with the heart, it's really trying to control blood pressure, control cholesterol, and then the other factors like sugars and um, um, I guess that's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, well, you're bringing up some interesting things. Some of the things that you're suggesting that um, that are the major problems, some of those things develop, not instantaneously, but over years, which means behavior is an issue. So is a little bit of cardiology, um, you know, one of the hardest things to do with people is to change behavior. So is there, you have to be good at psychology as well. Yeah, it's it's definitely psychology and it's Mm -hmm. definitely building relationships because if if we just talk about cholesterol, Mm Many people have high cholesterol, and the cholesterol drugs we use the most are called statins, and it's a whole class of medications that has a terrible rap because there is potential side effects. But instead of, you know, like anything else, we have misinformation, um, and instead of you know dealing with the facts of it, people are so nervous about using a medication. So if it turns out that a person needs a medication for their cholesterol. And I write a prescription and they think, boy, this guy doesn't care. He's just going to write me a script and move on to his next patient. They all think we golf. So they probably think that we're going golfing right after we see them. <laughs> um, but um, if, if, if there's not that trust level and that, that um, good communication and the asking of questions, you know, I need to ask them, are you going to take this? Do you have a question about this? Do you have a problem with taking it? You know, and you, usually those things come out pretty quickly. Um, but it's, it's definitely as much building relationships as knowing the science of it or the details of what 
you know, could be done because like you said, we're, we're trying to change behavior. So not only is it using medication, but if we worked on the things like good diet, good exercise, that, that is also additive in reducing risk. What is the role of, are you finding with your patients of, um, uh, family history and stuff. Now, in the clinic, you're probably not doing genetic testing, looking for genetic markers of disease, but we've all experienced going into a visit to a doctor's office and having to fill out patient histories. So do, if you have a history, are you doomed? Does good behavior and exercise and eating, is it purely preventive, you, you know, with or without heart disease? Sure. Yeah. So it, it really goes back to, you know, nature and nurture and the internal environment and the external environment of, you know, what what your body experiences. So there's it's, it's not just family history. There's so many risk factors that go into heart disease. So if we put them into a bin, family history is just one of them um, as far as the risk goes. But family history is important, specifically in heart disease. Family history is important because if your father had a heart attack at 40, that is much more significant than if your father had a heart attack at 90, because at 90, it's much more common to have a heart attack. You know, the body's older, the arteries are older. They've had 90 years worth of, you know, life and different things that go into that. Um, but a heart attack at 40 at only 40 years is much more significant because the body and the environment that it's in was able to develop plaque at a much uh, more rapid rate. So it's not just family history, but when the events occurred. Yeah. And so if one, so it's not just not exercising or um, not eating right. There are also behavioral factors like smoking and stuff like that, which you've all heard are very, very bad. If one stops those things, the, can you stop the, 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 the progression of coronary artery disease or are you doomed? Absolutely. There's, there's, lots of papers and different evidence and things like that, um, that we can dramatically change it. Some, some of the most dramatic changes are seen in diet. Um, if, if you, if you look at, um, the, I guess, common American diet, it's really pretty terrible. And it's unfortunate that people look to their neighbor to determine if they have a good diet. So instead of starting from what's my best possible diet and how close am I to that? They look at the person next door who is Burger King every day and say, well, I'm not doing that. So I got to be doing great. How bright um, you are. Yes. Which, which is, which is tough, you know? And, um, I, I, you know, the, the, the conversations of diet, sometimes they're just totally exhausting because, you know, someone's sure that they're doing the best they can, but, but the choices just aren't, aren't the best. And it's a really unfortunate situation too, that the worst food, is easiest and the cheapest so you know they talk about perimeter shopping in the grocery store and things like that looking at the fruits and vegetables and things well that's the most expensive you know if, if you go fill your cart with fruits and vegetables you're broke by the end of the day but you can go to burger king and feed your family for a week for less money than your you know your week of vegetables um so the the effort needs to really be there as far as making those decisions and working on the diet the best you can. Mm -hmm. um, you, you had said a minute ago something about it. Are, are you doomed if you have family history? And some of the toughest patients to deal with are the young, healthy-looking, athletic patients who always had good blood pressure, always had good cholesterol, but they have a terrible family history. 
And now at, let's say 50 years old, they have a stent or a heart attack. And it's, it's pretty, um, it's, it's a pretty big hit because they say I've, I've done everything right. My dad didn't do anything right. He smoked, he drank, he did this and that, and I've done everything right. I still had it. And I try to turn that around and say, but you would have had this 20 years ago if you didn't live the life you lived. You would have had a heart attack and potentially died 20 years ago. But because of your good lifestyle, we're able to sit here and talk and say, hey, you developed a blockage, but we were able to deal with it. And now we're going to go on with the continued healthy lifestyle, but also the different treatments that are needed as far as um, you know, make, making sure, say, it's a stent stays open and making sure that the plaque that is there doesn't progress any further. Yeah, you, you bring up a, a really a good point. Um, and, <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a teachable moment in the classroom when people say that, you know, you, you know, you, but you're here now because you did all these things leading up to it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in this segment, I want I want to um, ask, too, is it sounds like what you're talking about is a cardiologist is an example of a physician who doesn't work alone. It sounds like your practice has to collaborate with the uh, dietitians, with the psychiatrists and psychologists we were talking about, with the uh, renal physiologists, all those people. Is that true? Is you work as a team? Absolutely. And, and um, the primary care physician, too. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as, we, um, as, as patients get more specialists, they sort of get the feeling that their primary is not as important when it's the most important at that point because they are the person that kind of has all the information and the patient in front of them. It's certainly important for me to collaborate with all the physicians, but it's also important for us to keep in touch with the primary physician who is doing the, you know, most of the time managing the blood work, seeing the patient more frequently than I am, and also a very strong part of that whole relationship that that gets built as far as trust, um, you know, when, when, when a patient is referred to me from their primary, especially, you know, by name or something like that, um, it's, I, I already have a step up, right? Because the person that they trust is now referring someone else. And that is, uh, um, it, it, it's, it's all part of good care. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that, despite the fact that you said cardiologists like to feel like they're the smartest ones in the room. Uh, sometimes well, I'm talking about everybody else. Everybody else. Working as part of a team is, is an important thing. So I'm happy to hear you say that. Um, we're coming to the end of this segment, so we're going to take a break for some brief underwriting announcements. We'll be right back on Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, recording from the Digital Bronx Studios on the Lawrenceville campus of Ryder University. You're listening to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I'm here with student producer Dan Geller, and we're having a conversation with Dr. Christopher Young, a cardiologist at Capital Health Medical Center. And we're hearing a lot of things about cardiology, what to look for, what's happening in the heart, about uh, behavioral interventions. Um, But we also exist in a a time of COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, to make a long story short, we know one of the organs affected by the virus is the heart. So I'm going to ask Dr. Young, how has the the COVID-19 pandemic uh, changed cardiology? Uh, I, I guess you can start with the same way it's changed everything else, right? Everything is harder than than it than it used to be. Um, everything from 
your family being able to come into the office to being in a hospital and, and, you know, a, the tests that we used to regularly schedule. Now we need to make sure that you have COVID, you know, negative COVID tests and all kinds of things like that. Um, when someone is sick with COVID, specifically in the hospital, um, it's common for the heart to in some way be affected. Um, some patients, the heart rate's too fast, too slow. There's times where just the stress of being sick can cause a heart attack or can cause a weakening of the heart. Um, and they're, they're really the most sick patients, but there's also the patients who maybe don't have such a um, severe illness, but then afterwards they're experiencing uh, continued symptoms, which people are calling long COVID now, which can, can be anything from long-term shortness of breath or dizziness or exercise intolerance. So, I mean, the, the toughest thing really has been, this is brand new and every day we're learning something different. Um, but the things that, that I guess we can say we know for now are that largely the management of the heart during COVID when someone's really sick is supportive. We make sure that the blood pressure stable, the heart rate stable and things like that manage acute issues like a heart attack as they come up. Um, but also in, in the patients who have had COVID some, you know, al almost get better and then worse again. And some just never really get better where the progress is very, very slow. Whereas you know, if, if you had the flu by two weeks out, you've had your rest, you feel better. And, you know, you feel like you've pretty much recovered. Whereas with this, you know, we, we have some patients that are months or even longer out and still not able to get back to their, their exercise level from before. Um, and in, um, younger, younger people who get it, especially in schools and athletes and things like that, they've developed very strict protocols as far as, um, returning to athletics. So even younger people who have had COVID that are athletes in school are required a stepwise uh, slow progression before they're able to get back to their activities. And it's very reasonable because it's hard to know who's going to have the symptoms and how you're going to react to getting back to exercise. Um, but it's, 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 I guess, something that is, you know, developing as we go. And, and we're, we're finding that some people just really need a long time to recover. So are the long COVID effects on the cardiovascular system distinct from the, um, the, the, the cardiovascular problems due to plaques and uh, are they, are they uh, separate? Or if, they're, you, they're or if you have pre-existing plaques, this, it's gonna be worse. So there, there are people who with COVID or any other stressor, right? It could be that your gallbladder, you have, you know, you need your gallbladder out. It could be that you have a, gout, it could be anything. Anything can put a stress on the heart. But the specifics of what's causing long COVID and, and the other symptoms usually aren't due to blockages in the arteries, but more due to the cardiovascular system and the way that the body manages itself. Usually the body is uh, really perfect in managing the blood pressure, the heart rate, the temperature, and everything stays in such a fine balance that when the autonomic system is what runs that, when the autonomic system is thrown off, you, you can have symptoms for a long time where you can't uh, get your heart rate up the way it needs to, or it get, you know, your heart rate's too fast and your body just doesn't feel right when you exercise. So comparing it to blockages in the arteries, I'd say, that, you know, overall it's quite different. That's quite different. Okay, so and uh, connecting that to some of the things you said or 
before where you said talked about using medicines to help treat patients, using behavioral changes with diet and exercise. Um, are, when it comes to hitting COVID over the head, is it known what to do? Like it is with, you know, um, sort of more traditional coronary artery disease? Or is it, are people still learning and trying things out? I, I, I think we're still learning, but we are, there, there are other things that cause autonomic type dysfunctions. Um, you know, people are probably more common with mono, people who have mono and some people get better in a week and some people it takes months for them to feel better from mono. Um, I, I would put it more into a category like that where we know some things, um, but certainly still learning. Okay. And I, and I have to ask this question just based on my background and what's the connection between coronary artery disease or bad heart health and stroke? They're, they're really on the same page because mm -hmm. it's the cardiovascular system. Mm -hmm. um, there are, of, of all the risk factors that we look at, um, there are some that lean toward a greater risk of stroke than heart attack. So for example, high blood pressure um, raises the risk of both a heart attack and a stroke, but high blood pressure, if we just look at that in an isolated fashion, it raises the risk of stroke higher than it does the risk of heart attack. How about how about things like uh, smoking? Terrible. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't go there. So so, so what does so, a um, the, the the real the real problem with smoking? You know, obviously there's problem with smoking with lung cancer and yeah. things like that. But the problem with smoking from the heart standpoint is that it causes an inflammation in the body. Yeah, infl inf inflammation is Sorry. generally bad. Oh, Sorry. did we lose you? It's okay. Me out there. Now we're still here. Sorry about <laughs> exactly. that. Um, so the, um, the, the problem with smoking is that it causes inflammation in the body. And the core, um, I guess, problem or etiology of heart disease and plaque buildup is inflammation. So by smoking, we're basically pushing fast forward on the development of plaque because we, we're bringing inflammation into our body. Yeah. You bring up an interesting thing, too, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk embarrassing myself by asking, what does a cardiologist think uh, about efforts in New Jersey and other states to make like smoking, not just tobacco, but marijuana legal? And I'll just make it short that one of the things that marijuana does is, you know, causes tachycardia. So what does a cardiologist think of that? So I, I think it, it's really hard to get good information, to be perfectly honest, on, on, on anything from marijuana to CBD. Um, but I think it's two separate questions. I think the, the first question is, what does marijuana provide as far as medicinal purposes? Mm -hmm. And then is smoking really the best or safest way to consider that, right? And um, anything where you're inhaling smoke it doesn't matter what it is. If you're a fireman inhaling smoke, it's just not good. So inhaling smoke is bad. It causes inflammation. Um, but the medicinal purposes of, of marijuana, you know, which are being studied mm -hmm. much more, I think that that's where our potential benefit is. And I wouldn't want to see potential benefit ruined by a negative. So if marijuana in edible or other sort of forms is able to show that it has good benefits, then we shouldn't add negatives to that by, you know, adding smoking to it. And, and I just, just to, to 
to follow up on something you said earlier is even the medicines that are very well sort of accepted, like the statins, they have side effects. And so in that sense, there's there's nothing for free. Right. And so, you know, even though you hear this all the time, even though marijuana is like a natural product, it doesn't mean there aren't side effects um, from its, from it, from it. And everything really comes down to risk and benefit too. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, the, uh, for many things, we're able to take a small risk for a big benefit. Um, so if, if there is a good way for marijuana to you'd be used medicinally and it can be used without having to smoke it, that's probably the best way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I've had people say to me, so you, you, you raise the question of, you know, it raises your heart rate. So should it be bad? Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've had people ask me, well, my heart rate goes fast when I exercise. So I think that's bad. So I shouldn't exercise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, <laughs> so that's it, a fair know, question. It's, it's a, it is a fair question. It, it, it's, 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 it's an okay question, but the answer is that the overall benefit of that is much greater than the hour of fast heart rate that you might have. And that, that controlled, um, you know, you want to say sort of exercise of the heart and the system is, is what's most beneficial. Yeah, well, that's great. Good insight. That's actually, uh, <laughs> with, with that little bit of humor insight, thank you. That's a good time for us to, to end this segment. Um, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Christopher Young, a cardiac- cardiologist at Capital Health Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been a wonderful guest. The Health 411 program is on 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We record at the Digital Bronx Studios. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation has given you some things to think about, about cardiology and heart disease. And again, thank you, Dr. Young, who is our, our, our expert today. If you have questions, it's it been great. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077thebronc is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as advanced technology.